welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on June 5th, Lord's Day Service. This morning is Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land in the land you shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your intended vine. For it is the year of rest to the Lord, excuse me, for the land, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make this trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year to proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field." In the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the, multi- to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. Now skipping down to verse 18. So you shall observe my statutes and my judgments and perform them. And you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year, and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in. You shall eat of the old harvest. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for giving us rest through Christ our Savior. Thank you for freeing us from our burdens, for giving us delight in your goodness. May we walk now and may we hear and receive from your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The last portion of the book of Leviticus is the portion of hope. Hope 
is the message. We, we see in the first part of Leviticus teaching us how we come into God's presence. The middle portion of Leviticus teaches us how to walk in holiness. It establishes the distinction between what's clean and unclean, what's holy and common. But this last part of Leviticus, the part that's most often neglected, it is an important part because it teaches us what God's people do in having and building a true Christian culture. Now, of course, for them, it's, gonna, it's different than it is for us. But if we, if we consider this last part, the blessings portion, we, we remember last week there was discussion, or a couple of weeks ago, about the festivals and how the festivals were gifts to God's people. Those events formed the people's culture and prepared them for what was coming through Christ. Today, we come to a rarer and greater event. This event was intended to form and prepare God's people. Imagine knowing that at least once in your life, everything would be reset. You've heard probably of some of the powerful in the world calling a at least a couple of years ago for the Great Reset, where everything would be remade according to their desires. Well, scripturally, there is a reset that was proposed for God's people. Imagine today, though, if at least once in your life, everyone's financial problems would be solved. The powerful companies who gain their advantage through crony deals would lose their advantage over the smaller companies. And everyone who wanted work would have it, and everybody has a fresh start. That's almost impossible for us to think about. Yet it was commanded in the book of Leviticus. It's called the year of Jubilee. It's built on the principle of the Sabbath year. We read at the beginning, every Sabbath or every seventh year, the, God's people would not sow their crops. And they were called to let the land rest. They let your land rest, let your animals rest. And you say, how could they do this? Very simply, he told them, I'm going to provide for you in the year before. I will give you what you need. You say, that takes a lot of faith. I know. What else is the life of God's people built on? It's faith. It means we are promising, we are giving ourselves to God and trusting he's going to take care of us. I mean, whose better hands can you be in? So... This seventh year, they would rest, but then once every seven Sabbaths, every 49 years, on the 50th year, they would celebrate this restoration. And it was a restoration of every sphere of life. On the 49th year, you had had the Day of Atonement. We talked about the Day of Atonement several months ago. At the end of the, the, the practices of the Day of Atonement, a trumpet was blown, the ram's horn, the shofar. 
and they would sound this trumpet throughout all the land. And it would commence the spirit-inspired reformation of society. It was both a return to the past and a pointing to the future. The people would look and they would see that this is a time when the, the people themselves are restored. They are given rest and relationships are restored. There's no more of one person having another as a debt slave. That, that ends. Everyone goes back. Everything goes back to what it should be. This year was marked by redemption from slavery, by rest from work, and by and restoration of property. In this year, debts were completed. Slaves were freed, and the land was not planted or harvested. And the, the, the land itself, the, 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 that large pieces of agricultural land, that is, would go back to their original family owners. Now, this law did not apply to the homes that were in towns. So in the cities, in the towns throughout Israel, if you owned a home, well, you kept that home. You did not lose that. And he, and he talks about this when he gives some of the more explicit provisions. If you, and you can read about it in Leviticus 25. But the place where people gained wealth in this agrarian society, you gain your wealth usually through the land, or it could be from trading. Well, in, in, these, in these cases, the land itself would go back to those who had originally owned it when they came into the promised land. If a man had a debt, he couldn't pay, and this was normal practice. If you had a debt you could not pay, you would be sold into slavery. You were sold to the one to whom you owed the money. And you would work directly for that creditor until your debt was paid. This applies specifically to relationships of God's people with one another. It did not apply to those who were outside the covenant. In other instances, if the patriarch of the family died and his debts could not be paid, his land would be sold. Now, hopefully, someone within the tribe or within the family would buy that land. That's called a kinsman redeemer. We know about this story, especially from the book of Ruth. But what if there's no one who can buy the land and help the family out? Well, they would have to sell it to someone outside their family. And eventually the land starts to, you know, what did belong to one, now it may have changed hands a few times. But in the Jubilee year, Yahweh demonstrates that he is the kinsman redeemer. He restores all land to the family, to the rightful family. He expressly says in verse 23, that the purpose for this periodic reformation, this 50-year this reformation, is because the land belongs to the Lord. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. And you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
So all the land is the Lord's. And we read this also in the Psalms. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. We read that in Psalm 50, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. No one's going to say, actually, Father, I beg to differ. I own that land. No. You're the caretaker. And can I tell you all something? We're still the caretakers. Everything that we own, that we think we own, we are stewards. We care for it. It belongs to Him. So when we are stingy with the gifts that He has given, we're not being stingy with our stuff, we're being stingy with His stuff. It was common in ancient times for Mesopotamian kings, if they wanted to curry a little bit of extra favor with the people, they would declare this type of thing. They would say, all right, official declaration, all land goes back to the original owners, all debts are canceled and slaves are freed. That was a good way if you were nervous that the people might not like you very much right now, you would make this declaration and yes, you would lose some favor with the nobles, with the aristocrats, but you know what? It's okay because it's always a balancing act. You got to make sure you keep the everyday people happy and you keep the bigwigs happy. And so that's what kings would do. But Yahweh says here, every 50 years. Now, many would undoubtedly fear this upheaval. Especially those in power, they would fear it. That, that, and, and, and even those who were not in power, many would say, look at what we are bound to lose. If we don't plant, we're going to be vulnerable to starvation. We have all this land changing hands. That's a great opportunity for the enemy just to swoop in. We've got to, we, we've got to protect ourselves. And to protect ourselves, it's actually best that we ignore this law. I know what God has said, but he didn't really mean what he said, right? I mean, we got it. Yeah. There is God's word, and then there's common sense. So where did Israel fall here? Well, they, of course, fell to common sense. That's why we see no record in Scripture of God's people following the Jubilee year. They doubted God's promise. Some did not want this redemption, rest, and reformation. Some who had accumulated a lot of wealth and power were bound to lose some of that, and they preferred to retain what they had accumulated rather than submitting to God's jubilee. By the time of the prophet Isaiah, we see... God's people, some had already been sold into exile. Israel, the ten tribes of Israel were in exile. And then two tribes in Judah, they were soon to go in exile in Babylon. But still, Isaiah held out a promise. And, and he, a couple of times, associated the year of Jubilee in his prophecies, uh, in Isaiah 58, which we will not read, but also Isaiah 50, excuse me, 61. Now, 
like a lot of Isaiah's prophecies, there wasn't a lot of fanfare about this. Yes, people would read it, rabbis would read it, but then one day, a particular Jewish rabbi in Nazareth took out the scroll and read Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3 in the synagogue. He read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now up to this point, he was merely reading. But then he concluded with these words in the synagogue. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Well, this was a totally different kettle of fish. He's not just reading the prophet. He's saying, it's starting now. And he's not just saying it's starting in a kind of abstract, ethereal, out there way. It's, he read this and said, when he said this is fulfilled, he's saying that he is the one Remember, the opening lines, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of Yahweh, Yahweh's being is upon me, and He's anointed me to do these things. Well, the people were infuriated. They said, how can this young man call himself the one who's finally going to bring in the acceptable year. And that acceptable year is another term in Isaiah's words for the year of Jubilee. Remember, they hadn't practiced this, but they knew the tradition. They knew what was expected, and Israel was waiting for the time when all of these things that Moses talked about would finally happen. Jubilee had become, to Israel or to God's people at this point, Jubilee had become a prophecy. Something that would happen eventually. Jesus read this and said, we're not waiting anymore. It's starting. But Luke didn't just drop in and start in Luke chapter 4 with this. Luke's gospel tells us that what Jesus had already done leading up to this point. Jesus had done the preparatory work leading up to this reading. Just as the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go behind the tabernacle curtain into Yahweh's presence, and then he would go out and he would take the goat, remember, 
the scapegoat, he would take the goat, send that goat out to the demons in the wilderness. That's what the high priest would do. Jesus inaugurated Jubilee by coming into Yahweh's presence in baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized, right? He goes, and what happens? The sky opens. In Greek, it's, it's pulled back and the Spirit of God descends. So Jesus came into God's presence and he said, this is my beloved son. Yahweh said, this is my beloved son. So Jesus was anointed. But not only that, like the second part of the Day of Atonement, when the goat is sent into the wilderness, Jesus went right after his baptism into the wilderness. And he battles. He battles Satan. But unlike that goat who was sent into the wilderness, carrying away symbolically the people's sins, that goat would be destroyed. Jesus came back in power. He defeated, round one, but he defeated Satan in the wilderness. It would be like in the Old Covenant... The goat is sent out, and then the goat comes back in a, in a macho, huge way. You know, imagine the, the goat coming back nine feet tall, 300 pounds, and his ball would just fill the whole valley, okay? Jesus comes back in power after having gone into the wilderness but was not defeated. He returned. And then he reads the verse. Jesus inaugurated Jubilee as the great high priest of the people. What does he do after that, though? After this first announcement, he delivers a man who is controlled by a demon. He then healed Peter's mother-in-law. Then we read that he preached the good news of God's kingdom. So the things that Isaiah prophesied, Jesus said, this is fulfilled in your ears, and he proceeds to do everything that Isaiah said. Luke teaches that, he teaches us that Jesus' ministry begins the jubilee work of bringing redemption from bondage, rest from burdens, and restoration of God's people to their calling as God's image bearers. That's the good news. That's the message he's presenting. God's kingdom is coming. And he's, he, he doesn't just go around and do this himself. You read further in Luke, and he commissions his disciples. Not just 12, mind you. Do you remember how many? 70. He sends out the 70. So he commissions them. So he's already saying, he's establishing, this is not only the work that he will, he doesn't do it all by himself. Yes, he accomplishes everything, that's true. But then he will send his followers out to fulfill what he says. The abusers, though, of God's people, those who had power, just like those who were in power of old, were not prepared for what God was doing. They tried to stop him. And throughout the Gospels, we read of the growing tension between Jesus and the oppressors. They tried to stop him, but they were not successful, killing the great high priest of the people did not end the jubilee. It actually ensured its completion. 
We know the story. The king was killed. The priest was killed, but then he was resurrected and he ascended. And then as we remember this day, the day of Pentecost, he sent his spirit to us. So now we are the anointed, commissioned to go out and do the work of the ministry. So where does that leave us then? Jesus inaugurated Jubilee, but, but the Jubilee that he inaugurated, it's not fully complete. Now some want to pawn off the expectations of Jubilee on the state. We want to make this something that Uncle Sam will do. So, so some say, well, we're actually living out the Jubilee by for, forgiving third world debt or becoming a little or a lot more socialistic. You know, that's, that's really the Jubilee. Actually, no, it's not. That's not the point. The year of Jubilee was teaching God's people to act in faith. It was an act of faith. They had to trust Yahweh would protect and provide for them when they participated in this. How, and so, so you may ask, how can I do what, what, what how can I do these things? How can I rest when I look around and see so many bad things happening around me? How can I forgive someone when I don't know if they'll hurt me again? How can I obey God when I don't know how things are going to work out. I don't know what the end is. So how can I do what I'm supposed to do now when I cannot see what's going to happen tomorrow? And just like the people of old, we can trust that when we live out the year of Jubilee, as Jesus did, he will take care of us as well. He's the same today as he was then. So the choice is before us. Are we going to enact these things or will we fall away? Will we walk in unbelief saying, I can't. I don't, I don't see enough to actually make, cause me to believe. Do you remember the story of Peter when he went to Jesus and said, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother? So Peter thought he'd be generous. He'd say, seven times? Good guy that I am. Seven times? What did Jesus say? Not seven times. Seventy times seven. Do you notice anything about those numbers? We heard some about that this morning. 70 times 7 comes to 490. For the Jews, 490, when you look at some of the prophecies of Daniel, he, he talked about 70 weeks of years till the Messiah comes. And those, so 490 years, well, Jesus didn't just randomly come up with 70 times 7. It's like, well... I thought about saying 36 times 40, but, you know, I just, well, this is a better number. No. 
there's a per- point behind this. There is a purpose. And there's a lot more we could say, but, but I'll just leave you with this. Part of what Jesus is telling Peter is when you forgive your brother, you have a part in establishing the kingdom of God now. When you forgive over and over and over, you're not doing something that's purely natural. You're doing something that is supernatural and you are engaged in kingdom work, in the establishment of Messiah's reign now. In Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the Jubilee has started. So we live now in a partial Jubilee because the gospel has come. The gospel is spreading, but still we don't see everything. It's not fully in place. We still see many who are oppressed. We see those in power forcing wickedness and using their power to do so. But yet, it's not dark. It's not fully dark. The light has come and is growing. We see in the language of Romans 8, Paul says that the creation, not just human beings, but even the creatures themselves, those who enjoyed rest in the initial jubilee, those, remember, the animals, the land, it all they were all supposed to have rest. And Paul in Romans 8 says that even the very creatures, the creation waits for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our bodies. They receive rest, they received rest as well, and they still, according to Paul, look for rest. The final rest. The time when after the last redemption comes, we all will enter God's eternal rest. Paul speaks of the last resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And he says it will begin with what sound? A trumpet. Now there's only three reasons in Scripture for blowing a trumpet. The first is a call to war. It also could be a call to worship. And then, of course, it's the call to jubilee. When we are raised on the last day, in the final resurrection, there will be no more war. But that trumpet will announce the conclusion of the jubilee. The jubilee will finally come to its fulfillment. We will see the last part of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61 verse 7 when it says, everlasting joy shall be unto them. This is the hope that God has, the, the hope that he gives to his people. So in the meantime, we wait and we work. We wait for that final call of Jubilee 
And we participate in the distribution, in the, the actions of Jubilee. We can rest in the midst of fearful situations. We can forgive with confidence. We can restore and encourage others. And we can give generously without fear of loss because we serve the one who restores to us, who gives and promises to us more than we can ever give. So confidently live in the jubilee that's begun by Christ. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.